Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dana Sia. Dana is an adjunct professor at Eastern Carolina University, owner of her own mental health practice, Panacea Mental Wellness, and a volunteer with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, as well as the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, or AFSP. She is also a survivor of suicide loss and an all-around badass. On this episode, Dana and I discuss the loss of her father, James, to suicide in 2011, how the loss of her dad changed the entire trajectory of her career, how she applies her lived expertise to support the LGBTQ community and persons with disabilities, how and why suicide and mental illness seem to affect the LGBT community at a disproportionate rate, And finally, we talk about the steps each one of us can take to break down the barriers and be more inclusive in our own lives. I had a lot of fun doing this episode and took a lot away from it, and I hope you do as well. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for transgender and gender non-binary folks. Dana is actually who I use as my business coach, and I would recommend her to anybody who's looking for some help jump-starting their business or just looking for some pointed tips on how to take their business to the next step. You can check them out at ccresourcing.us or check out the link in our show notes. Hey, Dana, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, I love what you're doing with the podcast. So interested to see maybe what I can can contribute. Very cool. I love what you're doing as well. Uh, Dana's another individual who Betsy Rhodes sent over to me. Betsy is crushing it with hooking me up with awesome people to speak with on this podcast. And in doing a little bit of research about some of the areas that you focus, Dana, and some of the things that you do in your professional life, as well as being a survivor of loss, um, kind of a lot of different directions that I'd like to go today. But as always, there's a question I like to start with. And as we were talking about uh, leading up to the show, I always feel a special connection to other individuals who have lost their father to suicide um, and hate that that's kind of the main reason that we are connected today but also really glad that uh, I can relate to you in that way. And and I'm very curious to hear your experience with it. I'm wondering if, if you could tell me what is the most important or some of the most important things that you learned from your dad, either in his life or specifically from losing him to suicide? Yeah, great question. And kind of a two-parter, like you said, there's what you learned from the person while they were around and then kind of what you've learned from the experience of losing them. I think from him while he was around and some of this, we didn't even learn until after he died. Uh, People would come up to us and tell us stories about what he had done or how he had helped them. And I think that's what I really got from him. Like, 
he gave so much of himself um, to other people and, you know, maybe to a fault, but he really was the person that people could turn to. Um, even people that like didn't know him would, he would be there and he would help. There was a story about uh, a young woman who like flipped her car and he like saw it happen and cut her out and like essentially saved her life. Um, then there were some like funnier stories. Uh, we would go fishing and one day this boat just kind of rolled up and was like, Hey, are you James? That was my dad's name. Hey, are you James? He's like, yeah, what do you need? And they're like, Oh, we heard you're the guy who can get fish hooks out of people. And this oh, guy no. has like, <laughs> this guy had like a fish hook in his knee. And my dad's like, yep. And he, you know, had his method of like, um, wrapping the fishing line around it and getting it out. So I think that's kind of the span of how he helped people. And there's still, I'm sure, so many stories that we don't even know about like his imprint on the world and what he's done to that end, though, his imprint has carried through since his death because it really it changed a lot of people's lives again, in probably ways that I don't even know it uh, changed our community. I think to a certain extent, sure. There had been like suicide deaths and I heard about people who had died from suicide or who had attempted suicide after his death though, it really changed the conversation that we were having as a family and as a community about mental health and suicide just in general. Um, for the most part, I think if you haven't been affected directly, and sometimes even if you have, we don't really talk about suicide or mental health. And after his loss, it started the conversation. My family's never been one to shy away from intense topics, and this was no different. They were very honest about what happened. They were upfront. I grew up in a Catholic church and most people would think like, oh, well, you know, you must have been shunned or told that he was going to hell. And actually we had the opposite response. Um, they were very open and warm. We had a funeral. Uh, so it's a lot has changed um, since we lost him. And I think it's unfortunately we lost him, but I think we also gained a lot from what we learned from his loss. Yeah, very, very well said. And it's, it's amazing when that that bomb, if you will, drops in your life and in your your surrounding network for the first time of losing a loved one to suicide. Um, it, it made me reflect on when my dad died. Realized like we had kind of an important turning point as a family, because my family typically, especially my dad's side of the family, really tries to keep a composed view to the world right and talking about tough things is not maybe one of their strong suits and i realized that someone's got to step up and we have to kind of grab this by the horns and talk about it like it is and i don't know why but i kind of assumed that role and it was amazing to see the transformation amongst the the people around me just by holding the space to openly talk about what really happened and why it happened. How did we get here? Because everyone was so confused. No one could seem to even fathom how this happened. And I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of how something like this could happen with, with my dad specifically. And, and I love your point about the things you learned after his death from other people. I remember being at his funeral and, you know, that is a, it's a hard time to reflect on and it's hard to remember all the specifics, but 
you know, being up front there by the casket and having people just come up and offer their condolences. There were people that I'd never seen before, people I never met who were hysteric, hysterically crying about losing my dad and telling me that, you know, he's the best man they've ever worked with and how he impacted their lives. And uh, it's just amazing when you're able to zoom out. And, uh, you know, I think for my whole life up until my dad's death, he was my dad. That's all I knew him as. And through losing him to suicide and seeing how it affected other people, I was like, oh, he's like a person having a human experience. He's not just my father. Um, so that was one of the biggest turning points for me. Um, something I really am curious about, and I find we don't talk about enough. I think it's really easy to look at your father or my father and get really wrapped up in what was their final choice. Um, and something I have been very adamant about and intentional about is not letting my dad be defined by a suicide. There's so much more that made him the man that he was. And I get a lot of joy about talking about those things, like who my dad was and what did he do in this world. And I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to share with me about your dad. I'm curious what what he was like as a person, what kind of impact he had on you and, and the people around you. Yeah, it was, uh, he's, he was kind of a mixed bag. So sometimes he was the life of the party. He was getting everybody laughing. And sometimes he liked to just kind of be by himself doing his own thing. But I, he really brought like a humor, a humor perspective to everything. He always had great jokes. Sometimes my grandma would say he would just call, tell her a joke and then hang up. And that was it. Um, so he was just like, I, I can remember to my family, uh, I don't think this is the case with all Catholic families, but in my family, we were really close to priests and nuns. So they would be over at my grandma's house all the time. We were always celebrating something, someone's birthday or a holiday or having some big dinner. Um, we're Irish and Italian. So by dinner, I mean an all day eating affair. And there were times where he would like try to put my sister and I out of the room and, and have like a joke that I guess was inappropriate for children's ears, but not inappropriate for priests and nuns ears. So it was just kind of like, he was the guy who could kind of find the humor in any situation, just had like, you know, the megawatt smile um, type of person, but he was good at pretty much everything he put his mind to. He was a fisherman. He was a hunter. Um, he used bow and arrow. Um, he worked on cars. He, after, again, after he died, we kind of learned, not that we didn't know how smart he was, but we learned more about how smart he was. He built a basically vacuum sealed container to do paint, like a paint booth, which wow. has to be correct down to like the millimeter. And the person that came to like, you know, buy it after he died was so amazed that he put it together himself. Uh, they just couldn't believe that somebody who was like not a quote professional had put this together, but he worked on cars. He used an old school auto body machine where you had to calibrate it yourself and figure out how much to pull and what direction. And I mean, he was just like the smartest person I think I've ever met. Um, so he, he brought a lot of humor. He brought a lot of smarts sometimes again to his fault. He would argue that he was right most of the time, which maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but he was a good cook. Um, he could also bake. 
he was just that person that kind of showed up for everything, whether it was a soccer game for me or like cheerleading or color guard for my sister. Um, he was just there, you know, you had a flat tire. He was there. He was just always the person that would show up and kind of help make things right. I guess you could say. That's yeah. Beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that with me. And, you know, the, the more I have conversations like this seems like a pretty common thread of individuals who die by suicide being very intelligent, gifted people. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily know what that means, but it is a pattern that I'm starting to, to recognize. If it feels safe to you, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And we, we've talked a little bit about your dad's life. And I'm curious if, if it feels good to you to maybe focus a little bit on the time that led up to his death and maybe any significant events that were going on around that time. And then maybe kind of getting the news or uh, finding out that your dad had died. Does it feel okay to go there? Yeah, that's fine. So I was uh, 23 when he died, but he had struggled with mental health far before that and also substance use. Uh, when I was about 16 or 17, he went to rehab for the first time. Um, he had kind of gotten to a point where like he wasn't doing anything but sitting at home and drinking. Um, I think, you know, my mom, he was very uh, understanding that my mom was not happy with him. Um, and he actually came to me as like a 16, 17 year old and said, what do I do about this? I'm like, I don't know, you know, I'm just a teenager. But what I did find out later was um, he went to my grandma, I believe, who uh, got him in touch with her doctor, who ended up being like a family doctor for many of us, who ended up getting him into rehab. Um, and that was primarily for alcohol. But I think he was using other drugs that we aren't aware of. Um, there might be some people out there who know what was going on, but uh, that was kind of the focus. He came out, he said he was ready to get clean. And I think he did stay clean from alcohol for a while. I don't know about other substances, but he went to AA, um, although he said he couldn't stand going to AA. And for all we knew, he was clean for years. And I went to college, um, felt like he was still, you know, good through that time. And then after I graduated college, um, and moved and kind of started working, it seemed like, and I'm not saying that these are necessarily correlated, but it seemed like he started to fall apart again. Um, there would be times when I would call and he would sound drunk and try to play it off. Um, it just didn't, didn't sound right. I saw him a few times uh, when I would go to visit. At this point, I lived about three hours away and he just, he didn't seem right. Um, not like he had. And I think again, in, in hindsight and kind of learning from other people, I think that kind of devastated him that maybe he wasn't able to maintain his sobriety. Um, so that's kind of the picture of what led up to his death, but I think also the timing of the year. So he didn't like the cold, um, didn't like the dark. And when he died, it was like early November, um, kind of that time when everything starts to get that way. Um, his age, he was 53, which was getting close to the age that his dad had died. Um, his dad died. My grandpa died from um, heart issues and died in open heart surgery. And I think he was always worried that that would happen to him. 
So I think there's just a lot of factors. You know, he had bipolar disorder. He was using substances and had substance use disorder. He had this traumatic loss of his dad that I think was affecting his kind of mindset at the time. Both my sister and I were out of the house. Um, so he he probably was coming up on that time when he was realizing like maybe who he was or his identity was changing. And I just think it just got to be too much. He was, I will say he like struggled physically. He was in a lot of pain. He had a very hard job. Um, I think he was struggling spiritually and emotionally. I think just all these areas of his life just became too much. Um, so I was in my first full-time job at that point, only like a month in, maybe a few weeks in, if you will, into my first full-time job, 23, living out of state, trying to figure it out, um, and got a call from my mom. It was Monday and it was really late. Um, and I could just tell, like, first of all, calling late is like weird. You're already kind of on edge, but then her voice was just like, you could tell something was up. Um, and she told me that he had killed himself and I, I wasn't all that surprised. Um, I think again, in hindsight, there had probably been some other attempts, but just hearing that I wasn't too surprised. I was more surprised. I don't know about the method or the, I don't, I don't know. It was like surprise and not surprise if you will. But um, I just remember it was kind of like all hands on deck. My family ha has had many losses, um, many deaths. I think it was like every three years up until that point, I had had a major person in my life die. And so it was kind of like, you know, all right, we know the drill. Everybody comes into town. Everybody gets together. We all figure out what's the funeral going to be like. What do we need to do? Um, that was just around the time of my grandma's birthday, which is also just around the time of Thanksgiving. So it was just a really weird time, but also a time where the family came together. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling. I don't know if I answered your question. No, you definitely did. You definitely did. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I definitely noticed a lot of similarities between how you describe your father and, and how I knew my dad. Uh, being someone who was, in, in my opinion, not to be an armchair therapist or psychiatrist, but was dealing with some kind of undiagnosed bipolar disorder, substance use disorder, really funny guy. But you could tell he he hurt and he, he struggled. He was a troubled man. And so I, I definitely relate to what you shared about it, maybe not being that surprising that it happened. I think I was shocked like hearing that when you hear the words like dad and suicide, that's that's a bridge that you don't ever expect <laughs> to hear, you know. Um, but actually, once I the dust kind of settled, I'm like, yeah, that that kind of makes sense. I And it sounds like you have a, a pretty wide understanding of some of the factors that contributed. And I found that I have that as well. And that's enabled me to try to have compassion for the choice that my dad made. I don't know that he had a lot of other good looking options <laughs> with, with some of the factors that I now know are true. Um, my dad was also going to AA and was uh, at least sober from alcohol. And all we really know is that uh, he drank on the day of his suicide and the little note he left us, and I've shared this before, all it said was my first drop since Easter. See, I told you I could do it. 
So he clearly was in a space where alcohol, even while not being in his body, was running his life. Um, so I, I can just feel sad today. Of course, sad that he's not here, but sad for where he must have been. I want to kind of pull on that a little further. And you kind of took me through the years leading up to your dad's death and that immediate response of everybody come together, all hands on deck. And I can relate with that as well as like, we've lost a lot of people. We know what to do. So you're almost kind of in that autopilot mindset. I'm wondering what it was like after that. So now I imagine you go back to this job that you just recently started away from your family, away from maybe part of your support group to help you grieve. What was that experience like for you? It was already lonely before he died. Uh, so I moved to an area I had never lived before. I was far away from friends and family and it was really hard to find community in the area that I was living in. But the one thing that I did find was a community of survivors of suicide loss. So I, right after he died, I was like, all right, I got to get back into therapy. I hadn't been in therapy for, I guess at that point, about a year. I had free therapy in college, best thing ever, probably the best part of college. <laughs> and didn't know what it was like to try to find a therapist out in the quote real world. Like, how do you find a therapist? I knew I had insurance from my new employer. So I went through them to try to find someone. And even then it was like a two month wait. Uh, and this is back in 2011. You know, we talk about the wait now to try to find a therapist and it was mind boggling to me that it would take so long for me to be able to see a therapist. So that was kind of on my horizon. I mean, it takes two months just to try to get through the paperwork of a death, um, much less the, you know, try to get your feet back under you. But I knew that I had the therapist coming. I uh, didn't get too much out of her. I won't fault her for that. I don't think she'd ever worked with survivors of suicide loss before. Um, looking back, she was probably new to the field, but the one thing she did for me was provide me with information on how to connect with folks who were also survivors of suicide loss. And that group was really helpful. Uh, I did end up making some friends through that group. And that's what really carried me through the uh, three years that I ended up living there was the people that I met in that group. Um, you know, my family, of course, like we would call, we would talk to each other. I would visit as much as I could, but to just have people that you knew you were going to meet with regularly and that understood what your loss to whatever extent they could, that they understood the loss from suicide as opposed to loss from another cause of death. That's what really helped me more than anything else. Absolutely. And I, and I found there's something powerful about having a group like that of people who understand that aren't directly connected to your loss. Being able to grieve with family and share openly with family about the loss of a loved one, especially to suicide, is helpful. Um, but there are certainly times where grief may kind of conflict and make it challenging to really deeply connect with, with someone who's that close to the loss as well. Was that a AFSP support group? This was the Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network. 
They have literally a network across the state solely focused on suicide prevention and support for suicide loss. And they had regional, uh, I don't know what you would call them, affiliates or chapters. And within my local regional area, we had a support group that was facilitated there by uh, a peer and a clinician. So it what I eventually found out about AFSP through my previous therapist. So right after his death, I was still, you know, reeling from everything and ended up calling my therapist from college. And somehow she got back with me and told me about uh, the International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day or Survivor Day for short. And I had no clue about this. Um, It actually ended up being held the same day that his funeral did that particular year. So yeah, every year right around that time is like very intense because his loss and survivor day is coming up and I still volunteer with that to this day. So that was my first step into meeting folks with the American foundation for suicide prevention And after I left Tennessee, so I was in Tennessee for three years, came back to North Carolina and back to my hometown, um, there was a chapter being started in North Carolina at that time. And I was one of the founding board members of that chapter. I had kind of moved past, if you will, the need for a support group myself at that time um, and wanted to be involved in different ways. And being a part of that chapter was really meaningful for me to be able to support other people who are maybe earlier in their loss journey or even further in their loss journey, but maybe had never talked about it before. So a lot of great organizations doing great things. And it's really the volunteers and the people who have been affected by suicide. And you know that that's their passion. Um, Those are the ones who are making a big difference in how we approach the prevention of suicide and how we approach supporting folks who have lost a loved one to suicide. Absolutely. I was just at a support group for lost survivors earlier this week. And one of the things that I've realized is so powerful about a setting like that is you have people who are all at different points in their journey with losing a loved one to suicide. And there was someone there who was very close to the loss in terms of time and them sharing just this raw emotional experience of where they are just learning how to exist in this world where their loved one completed suicide just really kind of made some of those emotions resurface in myself you know parts of my grief that maybe i'm past or at least not experiencing right now i felt very in touch with and it was a little scary um, there was definitely a little bit of re-experiencing happening of like, oh my God, like I feel like I'm losing my dad all over again. But I, I think it's important for me at least to be able to remember what those feelings are like because it's easy to get just so busy and focused on life that we forget how impactful this this really was at one point in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. When we were talking leading up to the show, you mentioned that the loss of your dad to suicide really kind of changed the trajectory that you were on. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit uh, with me about that. Sure. So a year before his death, I had graduated with a business degree and was working in retail and then decided that insurance was going to be my career. I had some insurance agents in the family 
uh, it just made sense. I That was my first full-time job after the retail part-time experience. And I thought, you know, this is another way for me to help people through insurance. And I was able to really connect with people at sometimes the worst experiences of their life. Um, it could have been a loss to death. So, you know, with life insurance, or it could have been a loss of like a house fire or a car accident. And so I really felt like to a certain extent, I was helping people at that job, but at the same time, it wasn't like wholly fulfilling. So I started spending a lot of my extra time uh, volunteering within spaces of suicide, suicide loss, suicide prevention and intervention. And so I volunteered with uh, the Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network. I volunteered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and started to figure out like that was actually my passion and that was what I actually wanted to do. And through that process of losing him, I also focused more on my mental health. I knew that I had had uh, mental health concerns that doctors like told me about, like, since the age of four, you've been showing anxiety symptoms. And I was like, what? Like, no one told my family this. Um, so I really hadn't had what I feel like is a, a fair opportunity to focus on my mental health. And through working with others, that's where I started my mental health journey. I eventually became a certified peer support specialist. So these are folks who have lived experience with mental health and substance use issues who are in recovery uh, and also have gone through a training to become a certified peer support specialist. So I started volunteering some of my time leading support groups, providing peer support, not just with regards to suicide loss, but also just kind of mental health in general. And I was in a group and this was actually, I was in there as a participant. Um, and somebody was like, you need to do this. Like this, this is what you're good at. Um, and I was, okay, you know, I'm a Taurus, I'm Irish and Italian, I'm stubborn. And so I'm going to put my mind to this and I'm going to do it. And so while I'm still working and volunteering, I start applying to master's programs for counseling and got in and started the program and it just felt right. It was just, that was where I was supposed to be. And I was excited to learn more about kind of the background of mental health, as well as the ins and outs of providing services to others, while also bringing my own lived expertise to what I was learning, what I was doing. I don't think we have enough of that. Often counselors maybe feel like they have to remove their own experiences with mental health from what they're doing clinically, which I think is really doing a disservice, not only to the clinicians, but also to the clients who could learn from clinicians with lived experience. And part of that starts in the master's training because maybe not directly being told that we can't talk about our mental health, but indirectly we're being given signs that we should not talk about this. It's not okay for us to share our own experiences. And well, it was too late for that. By the time I got to my master's program, I was already open about my mental health. So I continued to be, and then set my eyes. The next course was I'm going to prepare the next set of clinicians better than I was prepared. 
and I'm going to open the conversation about my, you know, my experiences. Um, and I'm going to hope that the next set of students opens up about their experiences. So then I set my sights on getting a PhD so that I could teach clinicians. And that's what I did. And I was determined. So I made that happen after my master's. I went and got my PhD, um, which I graduated from in 2021. And this is where I'm supposed to be um, in doing the services with clients in doing the teaching with students and doing supervision with students. I learned so much of what to do and what not to do as a client. And from hearing my dad's experience, I'm able to pull that into what I'm doing as far as training others to do it. Um, I've also started a business where I'm providing services. So it's a private practice, but I also have students who come in and train under me um, as practicum and internship students. And I've also started doing more official type trainings for clinicians. I've been doing kind of like, I'll do trainings for other organizations, but now I'm able to kind of take the reins and make it my own, if you will. Um, and I think one of the areas I really want to focus on is supporting survivors of suicide loss. There is not that much out there with regards to ongoing trainings in competence of this area. And we need it badly. We are losing a lot of folks to suicide with every suicide. We know that there are hundreds, if not thousands of suicide loss survivors who are left to try to figure out what happened and where to go next. So we need clinicians who are trained in being able to provide that affirmative care for those loss survivors. Mm, I love that. You're, you're really speaking my language. That's an area that I, I find myself to be passionate about, which is the postvention space that is unfortunately still very kind of under-focused. Um, and, you know, once something like this happens, I feel like as a loss survivor, in my experience, at least, it's really kind of left to my own devices to figure out what to do next. How do, how do I put the pieces back together? And luckily, there are some really great support groups out there. You've talked about some, but I still don't find there's this like comprehensive help that is needed, just given the nature of how different a suicide loss is to other losses and how the inherent risk of something like that happening again just increases exponentially. So I think that's that's awesome. And it's really cool to hear the uh, tenacity that you exhibited by just like, well, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And there's a there's a quote I love and I, it's escaping me who said it. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but it's it's a purpose. A person's purpose lies where their grief lies. And when I heard that, that was like kind of what lit a fire under me to like, okay, I know what I need to do. I'm scared to do it. And that's what blossomed into me kind of starting this and having conversations with folks like yourself. And it sounds like you realized the same thing and really ran with it. And what an incredible feeling to go from doing what you think you're supposed to be doing to doing what you know you're supposed to be doing very different feeling. And when you're guided by purpose and intentionality in that way, um, I don't think there are too many roadblocks that can that can stop you from getting to where you want to go. You, you mentioned some of the things that you work on in your day to day life. And there's a lot, you know, being an adjunct professor with ECU, 
uh, now starting your own um, counseling and wellness practice. Uh, you're you're involved with uh, NAMI. You're involved with AFSP. I believe in a, a volunteer capacity. Um, are there any any of the? And I'm, I know there's more too that I'm forgetting in this moment. But are there any of those experiences that you feel compelled to pull on a little bit further in this moment? I'm yeah. I'm happy to. I can kind of break down maybe the key areas of my life that you've spilled out. Um, so thinking about in my practice. Uh, it, there is a focus on supporting survivors of suicide loss. So I have in some capacity volunteered with organizing a survivor of suicide loss day event every year since the year after my dad's death. Um, 20, 2011 was a little too late. It was the day of his funeral. So maybe I was, maybe in a way I was a part of one. We kind of had our own as funeral, right? That is really important to me in my practice to be able to support survivors of suicide loss and to have clinicians who either have a relationship to suicide loss or who are willing and able to support survivors of suicide loss. So that is a key part of my practice is being able to offer that support to survivors. Um, Within AFSP, I was one of the founding board members. I went on to become chair of the chapter across the whole state. And I think I've been to every walk across the state. I was involved in organizing several conferences. So we had um, chapter leadership conference in Charlotte one year. We had one of the first uh, conferences focused on LGBTQ individuals and suicide prevention. Um, so I, I that was a great place for me to be able to apply my passion for suicide prevention, intervention, and suicide loss in different ways that was going to ripple out across people, not just in our state. I think it did ripple out into other states as well. We have Healing Conversations, which are volunteers who have lost someone to suicide and will meet one-on-one -on -one virtually. And I think we're starting to meet more in person with other survivors. And I still volunteer with that as well. So that's a key part of my lost journey and how I was able to process some of that and connect with others who had had loss. Um, I've just recently joined the North Carolina National Alliance on Mental Illness board and really enjoy being involved with them um, to the capacity that I'm able to see, again, what's going on across the state. I have been to many of the affiliates and done presentations for them. Um, I did a presentation in 2016 for their state conference. So I've worked with their walk as well. They, they have one walk. I know AFSP has multiple across the state, but NAMI just really has the one walk. So this is a way that I, not that I moved from suicide, but that I have focused more on mental illness, knowing that there is a connection between mental illness and suicide to arguably different degrees, if you want to go into the research about that. Uh, but being able to be involved in an organization I volunteered with in a greater capacity as a board member is really meaningful to me. Um, we are working on our advocacy day that is coming up. So this is going to be in person again, going to the General Assembly, meeting with our legislative 
folks that are making the decisions that impact how we deal with suicide and mental health here in North Carolina. One of the laws that was passed not that long ago in North Carolina was a requirement that public school, so we're thinking like K through 12 personnel had to go through a training on suicide awareness, intervention, and prevention. That was already in place, a a law that required that in Tennessee. And the story that really sticks out for me was there was a secretary, I think it was at like a middle or high school, one of the students had dropped off all their books and just left it on her desk. And she was like, something's not right about this. And so she started reaching out and come to find out the student had either attempted or was planning to attempt. And they were able to intervene in that because that one secretary had been through that training and knew something was off and knew who to contact. So yeah. So being able to have that in place in North Carolina That's one person's story, but we know that there's so many more people that are being helped by those things. Um, So yeah, so that's my practice, my AFSP experience, my NAMI experience, and now really getting up and running with uh, another business I have where I'm offering trainings. And one of the trainings that is next uh, on my plans to do this year is on survivors of suicide loss. I want to be able to bring to people on a large scale what they need to know. I wrote an article a few years back about how to support survivors of suicide loss. And to this day, I still have people reach out and say, thank you for writing that article. I use that to help a client. So I know, I know that there's a need out there for that. And being able to bring, again, my own lived expertise Uh, I think is really helpful in talking about something that has affected me very, very personally. Um, Beyond that, when I'm not doing any of those things, I am teaching, um, I'm supervising. I really enjoy being able to see students as they head out into their first field work and they kind of get to sit down with actual clients and being able to support them the, I think it's like the second or third week of every semester, the topic I focus on is suicide. Again, that's not focused on enough in clinician training and being able to have conversations with them about what it's like from the client experience and how they can best support clients because they've got to be ready to ask that question. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? It was so awkward when I first started asking that question. Um, I went to trainings, there's safe talk and assist and QPR. I just remember like that word would just kind of get stuck in my throat. And now seeing the importance of asking that question and having that conversation with others, um, wanting to impart that on students and so that they are prepared for that when it comes up, because it's going to come up. I, you know, I would argue that this is Dana's opinion. I have your research on this. The majority of us at some point in our lives will have either passive or active thoughts of suicide. I think the majority of us will, whether we're keen to (laughs) admit it or not, which is fair, um, speaks to the stigma. We have that experience and we need to be able to have those conversations in a not only like empathetic way, 
a compassionate way, but a serious way. Like, let's not joke about this. This is, this is serious. Let's talk about the seriousness of this. Let's talk about what you can do. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, I'm spending time with my family. I have a spouse and three dogs. Um, so just, yeah, it's, it's a full life, but fortunately, as we've talked about, it's focused on my passions. So it's, I'm just grateful that I'm able to spend my time that way. Yeah. Wow. I think of like my life as a plate and it's not a very big plate and I try to squeeze as much onto it as I can. And it sounds like you have a giant platter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that so much. Just the the amount that you're able to accomplish by setting your mind to it and having it be, like you said, connected to your passions. And I know one of those passions and kind of where I'd like to shift the conversation and you mentioned it in in your last response is the advocacy that you do both for persons with disabilities, as well as the LGBTQ community. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that. I know there's some component both in your master's program as well as your doctorate program that focus specifically on the LGBTQ community. I know this is an area in general that you're very passionate about and have a lot of experience in, and I'd like to spend some time talking about it. Can you share with me a little bit how you got started advocating for those groups and what that advocacy looks like for you today. Absolutely. And it's very similar to some of the other things we've talked about. I think I kind of just fell into it and found myself in a space where I could bring my lived expertise and with the intention of improving the way that people are supported. So in 2016, the presentation that I did for the NAMI conference I didn't even have a PowerPoint. I went up there, me, myself, and I with a handful of note cards and information to talk about the LGBTQ community and mental health and suicide. Uh, who was I to go do that? Uh, <laughs> what what got in my head that said like, yeah, you should go do I have no idea, but I ended up there with my little set of flashcards, I have since turned it into a PowerPoint. So any visual learners out there, don't worry, I got you covered. <laughs> um, and I've presented it numerous times to different communities. Uh, some of them were rural and taught me so much to take a step back. I'll give you an example. I went to a training that I was doing. It was in a library, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And before the training started, same one, supporting the LGBTQ community in mental health and suicide prevention. The person came up to me and said, what does LGBTQ mean? Mm. And I was like, two things popped into my head. One, I got to take a step back here because I don't know who's in the room. I need to make sure that everyone's on the same page about what we're talking about. And second, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> like if you didn't know what this was about, why did you show up? But I'm so grateful that that person did. And I'm so grateful that every person I've ever been able to present that to has shown up. Even well-seasoned clinicians who work with the LGBTQ community say that they take something from that every time. And honestly, I take something from it every time because even though I'm seen as the quote expert, there are other people that know different things. So I learn from participants just as much as I feel like I am imparting on others. 
so yeah, I fell into that. The conference presentation went really well. From there, people heard about me and my presentation, had me come out to their areas of the state to present. Uh, I've gone anywhere from the mountains to the beach in North Carolina presenting on this almost same exact presentation. I've updated it, you know, every time, but, um, and then it turned virtual once the pandemic happened. And since then I've carried it on virtually. And that means I get to reach even that many more people. Um, there still seems to be a need for learning information about how best to support the LGBTQ community in mental health and suicide prevention. Part of the reason for that is the LGBTQ community experiences higher levels of mental illness and suicide. And when I say suicide, I really mean thoughts of suicide. And we'll talk some more about that and uh, because of the research and how crappy it is. But we know that there are higher levels for the LGBTQ community as compared to their cis and het peers. Really, though, my research has more so shifted to focus on the transgender and gender non-binary community because we know from the various transnational surveys that have been done, as well as a few others that actually collect gender identity, that they experience even higher rates of uh, mental illness and substance use and this, the suicide attempts uh, for that community it, the lifetime suicide attempts for the transgender, gender non-binary community that have been surveyed, so not including anyone who wasn't able to access the survey, hovers around 40%. Wow. Which sounds on the surface level already like a big number. But then I want to tell you that is eight to 10 times the rate of the general population. It's a huge gap that needs to be addressed. And that was one of the research articles that, well, it's not really an article, it's a paper more so. I never got it published. Um, but it was a research paper I wrote on how best to support the trans and gender non-binary community around suicide. And that presentation has also taken off and has been presented. I presented at the National NAMI conference on that particular topic. Um, so again, yes, this is, a passion area for me because as a queer person, I have that lived experience as a person with mental illness and my own thoughts of suicide and a suicide loss. I have that lived experience. Um, and I'm also a person with disabilities. And so that's been a focus of my research as well. Uh, there's not as much information on folks with disabilities and how best to support them. Uh, but my hope is that we will have more. And that was what my dissertation was focused on. Mm. Yeah, it, it is it is alarming to hear about that 40% number. And that's something I came across in kind of doing my research for this episode is, is that uh, those who identify as gender diverse um, have an estimated 40% rate of attempting suicide throughout their lifetime. And that, without knowing that that was eight to 10 times higher than the general population, that was still an alarming number. And something else I came across that I was really curious about uh, is that those same individuals are three to 6% more likely to be diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. Um, and you also talked about higher rates of mental illness. I'm wondering if 
if you have any opinion, because like you said, the research that out that's out there is not the best. Um, and I'm wondering just in your experience and your expertise in the training that you've given and the folks that you've been able to meet with, what, what, what do you feel contributes to these higher numbers that we see amongst uh, mental illness, amongst suicide attempts, um, amongst kind of the neurodivergent population? What, what, what are some of the contributing factors there that you see at least? Yeah. And I first want to uh, address a myth of sorts about suicide death rates for the LGBTQ community. The reality is we know nothing, literally nothing about the suicide death rates for the LGBTQ community. Why is that? Because sexual orientation and gender identity are not noted anywhere on a death certificate. So already the suicide death reporting is abhorrent. We we think we know like folks will you know, quote at me the most recent suicide rates. And I'm like, that's like two years ago. Like that's the most recent data we have. We are really far behind in our research on suicide death. But for the LGBTQ community, we know nothing. Um, as far as the overlap between like mental illness, uh, increased rates of suicide attempts and neurodivergence, for... I'll start with neurodivergence because that might be the easiest to go through. Um, specifically with the trans and gender non-binary community. So I work with a lot of neurodivergent folks and have for years. And what I have found is neurodivergent folks, while sometimes seemingly more concrete than other people who are neurotypical, they're actually very flexible when it comes to gender. And that I think plays a role in why we see an increase of trans and non-binary folks who are also neurodivergent as well as neurodivergent folks who are trans and non-binary. So it kind of goes both ways. There's no like chicken or egg scenario. It goes both ways. Um, and I think that is just the unique and amazing openness that neurodivergent folks have around gender and gender identity, and probably also sexual orientation. Uh, as far as mental illness, substance use, and suicide attempts, that is more of, and this is Dana's opinion, although you could find some research to back this up, that is more about how society treats LGBTQ folks. So we know from suicide prevention research, specifically for the trans and non-binary folks, that when you have laws in place that are discriminatory against trans and non-binary folks, the suicide rates for that community go up. Even if you have no laws, whether protective or discriminatory, you have less rates of suicide attempts for the trans and gender non-binary community. And as it would make sense, when you have more protective laws and policies in place for the trans and non-binary community, you have the lowest rates of suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. So even if it seems really abstract to have a law in place, especially one that isn't particularly 
good at being upheld. For example, HB2, the bathroom bill in North Carolina. Just having that law in place increased suicide rates. I remember the Trans Lifeline, which is a specific suicide hotline for trans and non-binary folks by trans and non-binary folks. They have a graph of the calls that came into their line. And it's kind of goes like, you know, up and down, kind of low. HB2 goes into effect and it spikes. Wow. So there really is more of an effect from the way society treats LGBTQ folks rather than some inherent issue with LGBTQ folks that would increase mental illness, substance use, and suicide attempts. With substance use, one of the things, if you look at the history of LGBTQ folks, and I I try not to always lump them together because I know it is very different between sexual orientation and gender identity. So just as a sidebar, for LGBTQ community in general, though, many of the places that they met up and were free to express themselves in the ways that were true to themselves, both with regards to their sexual orientation and their gender identity, were bars, were institutions where alcohol was frequent. And so to me, it would make sense that substance use might be increased if it's kind of an expected experience within a particular community. As far as mental illness is concerned, we know that children, LGBTQ children especially, have higher rates of mental illness. And I'm thinking about when you're a child, the the barriers, the lack of autonomy, the confusion, the essentially what you're hearing about what's right, what's wrong, what's sinful, you know? And so children are really at a vulnerable place to have a sexual orientation or gender identity that is not the quote norm because they've got all these adults that are telling them what's right and what's wrong. And if you're constantly told you're wrong, you're not allowed here. You cannot show up as your true self. You're denied access to services you need. Then I think it kind of common sense make would say, yeah, okay. Increased rates of stress, increased rates of trauma equal increased rates of mental illness. And those LGBTQ children become LGBTQ adults. And mental illness doesn't always just go away. The discrimination doesn't go away. Even as the protective laws increase, that doesn't mean the discrimination decreases. So, yeah, another long-winded answer to your very simple question. <laughs> I don't I don't think it was a simple question. And I think it was uh, exactly the answer I, I needed to hear. I, I want to pull on something a little bit, you know, as I've started this project, something that's become very important to me, as we talked about a little bit before doing the episode, is the language that we use, uh, not just around suicide, but also mental illness around gender identity. 
And there are a few terms that have been thrown out there in our conversation today that I wanted to kind of shine a light on and ask you some questions on. Um, you mentioned like cis and het as terms, those I'm at least notionally familiar with as being cisgendered, heterosexual or heteronormative. Um, and I've heard you use the word folks a, a few times in the conversation today. And I have an inkling with uh, kind of where that's going, but I'm curious, how are you spelling that? And what is the importance of that term when you are uh, relating it to uh, gender diverse uh, or the LGBT community uh, at large? One of the things that's a huge pet peeve for me is a phrase that is commonly thrown around within groups. Hey, guys. Hey, you guys. Right. And it's like, uh, OK, almost 100 percent certainty that not everyone who is here in this group that you're calling guys actually identifies as a guy, almost 100% certainty. So for me, it's really a pet peeve how gendered our language is. And I think we are increasing our use of gender neutral terms. And so for me, folks is one of those. And I think I picked this up probably from others. I can't necessarily take uh, ownership of the originality of anything that I say or report on, but Folks spelled with an X, so F-O-L-X. And I think we've kind of taken that to mean a truly gender neutral term referring to just kind of people in general. Uh, it, even if you think about like human, like man is in there. Um, so I think folks is one of those that kind of brings it back to just the people level, as it were. Uh, for me, I will say, hi, all. Hi, everyone. Hi, y'all. Uh, we've got that here in the South kind of in our repertoire. Um, so, yeah. And then to get more specific about like heterosexual and cisgender, uh, I want to note that these are terms rather than labels. And some of them are identities rather than labels. So for me, what that really means is I'm not going to look at somebody, how they dress, the pronouns they use, who they love or who they do or don't have sex with and say, oh, that defines you. And that means that you are this particular label. Rather, I'm going to go to the person and say, what is your identity? If it's even important, like most of the time it's not, who cares? Um, but if it is important, it is part of the conversation, then just saying, What's your identity, rather, so that they can note for themselves what their identity is? For me, my identity is queer, both for sexual orientation and gender identity. If you ask someone else who identifies as queer what that means to them, I guarantee you it's going to be different than what it means to me. So it's really important that we are giving folks the op opportunity for autonomy and to describe themselves rather than label them or put them under some sort of like term, if you will. So just kind of generally speaking, um, within cisgender or transgender as kind of like the two binary options there, uh, cis and trans actually come from like Latin and chemistry. Uh, cis meaning on the same side as and trans meaning on the opposite side as. So cis would mean that the person's gender identity aligns with the expected 
gender identity based upon their biological sex at birth that they were assigned. For trans folks, that often means that their gender identity does not align with the sex that they were assigned at birth. And sex in and of itself is pretty complicated. It's more than just like male and female. Um, it's more than just external genitalia. I like to make the comment that gender reveals are actually genitalia reveals. Um, so just an FYI on that one, we're, we're kind of exposing someone's genitalia without their consent by having a gender reveal. Uh, but we've got external genitalia, internal genitalia, chromosomes, hormones, you know, the aspects of our DNA that really make up all the factors of sex. And as we learn more about that, we learn how varied it is. It is not this or that. It's kind of like, it's not even a spectrum. It's just kind of like everything encompassed within that. And then for sexual orientation, there are more sexual orientation identities that I could than I could name today as I talk to you. Um, so I won't try to go into them, but I will say for like heterosexual folks, this is typically folks who are attracted to and or having sex with the opposite sex. Um, but again, someone may identify as heterosexual and still have sex with people of the same sex or same gender. Um, and that's their identity. And who am I to say that they aren't heterosexual just because of what they did um, with another person? So for me and my research, it's and the research that I will use, it's really important that these are identities that folks are able to choose their identities rather than them being labeled something based upon activities or you know, maybe how they express themselves, which is how historically research has been. Um, so I'm very, you know, I'm probably one of the few people who reads through the methods sections of research articles to figure out how did they find out what the demographics of their participants are. Mm, yeah, thank, thank you for going there with me. Um, definitely come to realize my own ignorance <laughs> around this topic and have had to learn some lessons the hard way by, like we talked about earlier, making mistakes. I remember when I first moved to Asheville, um, I was at a party and I walked in and was greeting people and I said, what's up guys? How, how are you guys doing? And was met with resistance about the use of the word guys, which is not something up until that point I ever thought of as a gendered term. Mm -hmm. Growing up in New Jersey, that was kind of the most common word that we use to greet a group of people was guys. So that was my first lesson in like, oh, wow, I need I need to pay attention to what I say. And there are better ways to say some of the things that I'm trying to say. Um, and, and even one of those things, which is a thing that I found has become kind of normal in the vernacular with how we ask about someone's identity is what what are your preferred pronouns? which I've learned is there's a better way to say that because these are not preferred. I'm not saying I prefer that you refer to me as he, they, that, that is what I identify as. That is what you will refer to me as. Is that correct? And I'm, I'm curious, what, what would be the best way to ask if it's something that you're curious to know or something you want to be cognizant of in conversation with someone? 
Yeah. And sometimes the recommendation is actually not to ask because it can put people on the spot, especially in a group of people. Like if you're going around the room and you're having everybody introduce themselves with their names and their pronouns, I think for cisgender folks, I would encourage cisgender folks to really step up and to use their pronouns and to share their pronouns because they're in more of a privileged space with regards to gender and sharing of pronouns. There are going to be some folks, uh, whether they're trans, non-binary, who maybe don't know what pronouns they want to use. Um, Maybe they aren't comfortable sharing for a variety of reasons what their pronouns are. Uh, To your point, if you are going to ask about pronouns, so I will just say, what are your pronouns if you are comfortable sharing them? So uh, the other way around that, though, for me that I think is, how do we introduce ourselves? If I say, hi, my name's Dana and my pronouns are she, her, they, them, that opens up the opportunity for the other person to share their pronouns if they want to. So I think there are ways around asking people directly, putting them on the spot, which, hey, I've done it and I felt really bad afterwards. Um, But I have since learned that no, not always the best way. You can encourage folks to do it, but I don't know about putting people on the spot. There's a lot of ways you can show your pronouns on your name tags and your bios Um, you know, we're meeting on Zoom today. You can add your pronouns to your Zoom name. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that you can display your pronouns without like having to ask someone else what their pronouns are. Um, So yeah, preferred, you wouldn't say, what's your preferred name? Yeah. Like no one says that. What's your name? Okay. Like my grandma, she uses her middle name. She doesn't use her first name. And if you use her first name, she's not going to be too happy with you. But she is a 92-year-old cis Irish woman, a Catholic Irish woman. Um, but still, she has a, she wants you to use the name that she uses. She doesn't want you to ask what's her preferred name. And then you call her by her first name. Yeah. Uh, she wants She wants you to say, what's your name? And she says... I'm Dolores. Um, So I think it's really important for us to just go in with the same way we would ask anybody else. Don't assume that somebody is trans or non-binary and or only ask people you think are trans or non-binary what's Mm. their name and what's their pronouns. Like this should be across the board. You never know who you're talking to. And I remember when I first started sharing my pronouns, it was awkward. It was uncomfortable, but I got more comfortable with it. I remember when I started asking like clients one-on-one, what are your pronouns? Um, That became more comfortable. And I also found out different ways to do it. Just put it on the intake paperwork. Um, So it's, it's not a part of our conversation usually. It is something that we have to learn to do and become comfortable with. And to your point, it is like how we talk about suicide. In all of this, we are trying to eliminate stigma and discrimination. And the only way to do that is to make it a regular part of our language and to adjust when needed. Whatever language we're using now is probably not the same we're going to be using in five or 10 years from now. So we're just going to have to learn to adjust and figure out what's going to be the best way to talk with others about whatever it is we're talking about. 
Yeah, thank thank you. I appreciate that. And and that's the part that is hard, I think, as as a cisgendered man, at least as how I identify, is not having the lived experience or lived expertise and in recognizing my own ignorance around sexual orientation and gender identity. I can be really clumsy and clunky with the way I talk about these things. And it does feel awkward because I'm still learning. And I feel like the best tool I have in my tool belt around this conversation is curiosity. I do want to learn more. I do want to do better. I do want to make everyone feel more comfortable with the words that are coming out of my mouth. And I really, yeah, I appreciate it. It definitely resonated with me, the conversation around what are your pronouns versus preferred versus just not asking at all and offering up your own as, as a way to open the door for someone to share that with you. There is something I wanted to ask you about on this topic, and it's the topic of, of neo-pronouns, which is another thing that it can be confusing to me because I know so little about it. I was in a uh, recovery meeting probably about, I don't know, six, six months ago. And in this particular community, the way you introduce yourself is by your name and your pronouns. And the first person who went in this particular meeting said, hi, my name is so-and-so and my pronouns are King and the chosen one. And I was like, what, 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 what does that mean? Is he trying to be funny? Mm-hmm. Is this person mocking the idea of using pronouns other than what you're assigned at birth? I, I just really didn't understand. And obviously, we're not going to be able to understand what this person's intent was in sharing that. I, I'm curious, though, what it means to have neo pronouns and how we can make sure that we are recognizing that and using them in a way that makes people feel included and comfortable. Mm hmm. Well, I think before I address kind of maybe the specific example that you gave, just knowing that there are a wide variety of pronouns and some of them you've probably not heard of before and that's okay. Um, but there are also going to be some folks who don't use any pronouns at all. So you might just use their name. There are some folks who might use their first initial uh, instead of pronouns. So there's a wide variety of ways that we might opt to refer to ourselves as. If you hear something like the example you gave that you've never heard before and you have the instance to talk to that person one-on-one, -on -one, maybe rather than, you know, I kind of know the AA format, probably not appropriate right after they uh, introduce themselves to ask this question, but let's say that you met one-on-one -on -one at the coffee pot or whatever, right? And you say, hey, you know, your pronouns um, are new to me. I haven't heard those before. Would you mind using those in a sentence so I can see what's the correct way to use those? Um, I think that would be, it, it. like you said, it brings up the curiosity piece. Like, I, I want to do better, but I don't know how. So admitting, like, I, I've not heard this before. Can you please tell me more? And it gives, again, the autonomy to the person to explain how they want their pronouns used. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't particularly know how to use those pronouns. So I would have asked the same question. Can you give me an example of how you would like me to use your pronouns? Um, so I think that's the way that I would have gone about it. And I think it's a way without putting them on the spot in front of everyone. But it's having those one-on-one -on -one conversations where you say, hey, can you 
kind of give me some examples of that. But we can really do some cool things with the English language that avoid using pronouns at all or avoid using the gendered pronouns at all. And I think it does take some thinking through how we talk about things, um, but we can do that and we can learn new ways of, you know, using pronouns and using our language. I hope that answered your question. It did. It did. I'm still, I still find that I'm very curious about that specific example that I gave and wish that maybe I would have asked a question about it. That seemed. And if it had been a joke, now you've really put the spotlight on them to explain why it's a joke, which is a great way to approach for any marginalized group where you can't, maybe, you know, for sure that this is like, they're trying to make fun. It's that's what like, it seemed like to me in the moment. That's yeah. Sure. Possibly. So you can be like, Hey, can you like, if they say I'm just joking. Okay. So you've asked the question, Hey, I've never heard those pronouns before. Can you give those to me in a sentence? Oh, well, haha. That was just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Oh, okay. Well, can you explain to me why that's funny? Mm. Cause I'm not, I'm not getting it. Right. And so <laughs> it's a great way for marginalized groups to kind of point out like, yeah, you think this is a joke, but I'm not taking this as a joke. This is not funny to me. Yeah. Um, and the same can be true. So true. Another pet peeve of mine, jokes around suicide. If mm. such and such happens, I'm just going to kill myself. Right. And what I have learned through trainings on suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention is I take all of those seriously. And so rather in that case of a suicide joke, rather than saying, can you explain to me why that's funny or whatever, I would say, and I have said this, I take every mention of suicide seriously. So I want to check in with you and make sure that you're okay, because I've lost a loved one to suicide and it was not funny to me. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is a huge, like for me, hearing jokes about suicide, which thankfully have been less and less. Maybe because the people around me know, oh, okay, I'm not going there around Dana. Um, but that's huge for me is not joking about something that is so important. And pronouns are very important for people too. And so if it was a joke, just asking why is that funny? If they admit like this is a joke, um, then just trying to figure out why is that funny? But I've also seen on Twitter, people turn it around. If somebody throws out there, my pronouns are, you know, whatever, um, then they will use those pronouns in a sentence to kind of show that person, like, this is not funny. Like, here's what that looks like. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Without asking that person, we don't know where they're coming from, but I think if we have the opportunity and it's important enough to us to do just, coming in with curiosity um, and just trying to figure out like really where's this person coming from. Most of the time it's some discomfort in the person themselves, whether it's around gender pronouns around suicide or mental health. Um, it is some discomfort this person has and maybe experience that they've had. Um, I'll share a story. I was at Charlotte pride which I, I don't know that it's the largest pride in the United States, but wow, they get like 100,000 people come through there from wow. all over the country. Wow. Um, and maybe I'm overestimating that so somebody can fact check me, but 
Well, I was there one year and there was a couple of religious figures who were walking around to the tables and zeroed in on ours. It said, you know, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on the front and zeroed right in on our table, zeroed right in on me. And this guy starts telling me about how suicide is a sin and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, I'm not too faced by people because I know that there's probably some hurt behind what he's saying. Um, There's a reason why he zeroed in on us and zeroed in on me. And so I'm just going to hear you out until you've taught yourself out of whatever you have to say and then check in like what's really going on with you. Well, I didn't have an opportunity to do it with that particular person because one of my colleagues and friends there jumped in and, you know, had an argument about this, which is fine because it allowed me to step to the side and the other religious figure that was with that person stepped over to me and said, I lost my mom to suicide. And I wow. didn't know that he was going to say that. Mm. And so you never know who's around when you're saying things. You never know fully the impact of what you're saying. And in that particular instance, i almost positive that person who was angry had some sort of, you know, interaction with the suicide loss that still hurts them to this day. And similarly, the person that was came with them, you know, I still think about them. I still think about what did they take from that day? Like if we don't argue with people, if we just meet them on a human level, like how can we change the conversations that we're having and, maybe the the empathy that they could feel rather than the hatred if that makes sense absolutely that's that's a powerful experience i kind of got chills as you were sharing that that's really cool that you were able to experience that in that way because i feel like my first response would have been to get defensive and maybe argue as well and just by taking the back seat you were able to have this amazing like one-on-one human encounter and i want to go back to what you said about how we can approach these situations, it sounds like the way to do it is the thing that is terrifying to me and I think terrifying to most people, which is to ask questions and be willing to be wrong yes. and admit that you don't know. That, that alone is scary to me. And I've been in situations like that where I've asked, what, what are your preferred pronouns? And they go, well, actually, uh, I don't like using that terminology. My pronouns are so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, okay. I just learned something new today. So I think it was a win-win. It was awkward. It was clunky, um, but it gave me an opportunity to learn and gave, gave them an opportunity to be seen. So that's, that's the takeaway I think from, from that part of the conversation is to try to push aside some of that fear around having these awkward conversations and embrace the awkward. I've definitely heard that before, embrace the awkward around talking about suicide. Um, But I think that applies to, to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not um, making it like if the other person is having um, an experience where we've maybe hurt their feelings, not turning that experience around about us and our discomfort by saying something to the effect of, I am so sorry. I did not, you know, that's like more about us. And how we're, our reaction is to their reaction. Can we just hold steady and say, you know what? I'm so sorry. Thank you for that information. I'm going to work really hard to do better next time. Um, 
or even asking what what specifically did I say that mm -hmm. that has hurt you so I can make sure I don't say it again. Absolutely. Again, putting our discomfort aside to really be able to sit with another human and figure out how can we best support this other person rather than trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Yeah. Which is quite honestly, probably my first reaction, like at least my default reaction, if I don't work to respond differently. Mm -hmm. this, this has been a very enlightening conversation and I'm really glad to, to have had it with you. I wanna be mindful of time and there are a couple other things I wanted to ask about. Um, one, which is pretty closely related to uh, this whole part of the conversation, just in kind of reading about some of the work that you do leading up to the episode, came across another term that I wanted to ask you about and ask about the importance of the term itself and how it shows up in the work that you do, which is uh, decolonizing mental health care. To, to be totally frank, not something I've heard before and had to look up like, what does that mean? And had my own little educational experience last week leading up to this episode. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that means to you and how you apply it in the work that you do. Absolutely important for mental health and suicide prevention, because if you look at where did this field start, it's a wall lined of cishet white guys. And knowing that our field is based on that. So when I say our field, what I mean by that is our theories, our techniques, and how we diagnose people is all based in the cishet white male view. They ran things back in the day. They started this, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of that that still shows up where we've got folks with different overlapping identities who don't really fit the theories, the techniques, or the diagnoses that we have available to ourselves. So we have to figure out ways to work within a system that wasn't made for us and our clients to best meet us and our clients' needs. And this even is true, I would say, for cishet white men. If we look at suicide statistics, they make up 70% of suicide deaths in a year. So something is not going right if that is, again, another huge discrepancy that we have in the statistics. So for me, well, for each person, it's going to be different in how you decolonize your clinical practice, which there are great folks out there who are doing trainings that I have taken, who are sharing their wealth of knowledge, who I am learning from, and I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. So part of what I've done with my practices, and this is going to sound anti what I'm talking about is I don't take insurance. I'm happy to provide uh, super bills, which are really detailed invoices you can submit to your insurance company for out-of-network benefits, but I'm not in network with any insurances. And here's why. Because the insurances are a part of that system too. Insurance companies are, let's be frank, greedy. And they're not very giving of what they should be giving of. We had laws passed that were supposed to bring about mental health parity. And as a clinician and a client, I can tell you 
right now we have not met mental health parity. What mental health parity is essentially treating mental health at at the same like level that we treat physical health. So the copay should be similar, the benefits no. should be similar, the access to care. However, mental health clinicians are still considered specialists to a certain extent. And that does not put us on the same level as say a primary care provider or even like a physical therapist. Um, So we have a lot of work to do to improve that because we know you can't just fix something in 10 sessions or 15 sessions or whatever. Um, So I don't want to be limited to that. I don't want to be limited to 10 or 15 sessions that insurance tells me I can have with a client and then I have to discharge them. Um, I don't want to be, I, I have disabilities. I have marginalized identities. I don't have the ability to fight with insurance companies to provide what they should already be providing for their clients. Um, I know some folks cannot afford my rates. They can't afford rates that aren't covered by insurance. Heck, Many people can't afford the deductible they have. That was another thing. When I went to um, therapy for the first time, I thought, ooh, $13 a session, this is great. Nope, that was my 10% copay after I met my deductible. So then I was hit with $130 per session bill after the fact. Um, So yeah, we don't have parity. We don't have equal access. There are a lot of barriers But part of what I do to break that down is I have a at least one student at any given time who is offering low cost and free services to folks who otherwise can't afford my services. And me, I could do a handful of people. My student can see a lot more than that. So that for me is a way to reach more people who need support where I'm supervising someone and teaching them what I do, but they're getting, you know, similar services from someone who's at a much lower cost. Mm. So that's one way that I decolonize my work. Um, Another way is we are extremely transparent about all of our practices, all of our policies, all of the ways we go about things from the very first meeting we have, we're not hiding the fact that we're out of network. We tell you straight up first thing. We're not hiding the fact that we are only virtual and don't have in person. We tell you that first thing. There's no like hook somebody in and then there's a catch later. You yeah. know up front all the pros and cons of our services. Um, so that's really important to me. And that's probably just a scratch of the surface of the way that I work to decolonize what I do just in my practice. That doesn't even include the research that I do, the teaching that I do, the supervision that I do. I try to integrate that as a white person, knowing that I do hold and a seemingly cis and hetero presenting person, which still boggles my mind. I'm like, how are you? That is not how I'm seeing myself. How are you getting that from me? But okay. So I have these presenting identities that essentially give me privilege, even though I don't actually align with those identities of cis and het, I'm still, I am white and I have privilege with socioeconomic status and connections that I have that a lot of people don't have. So part of decolonizing is being aware of that being aware of my own identities. What do I hold 
as marginalized and privileged identities? And what does that mean as I interact with other people and they bring their identities to the table? So I hope that that made sense. It's a very simplified uh, explanation. I think there's other people who do it a lot better than me, um, but that that's my attempt in this. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think it was very well said and it opened up probably like 10 other rabbit holes. I, I want to <laughs> dive in with you. Yeah. I, I love what you said about mental health parity. I, I drove past a billboard in Asheville. It's right off of... Uh, 240, which is one of the main highways that will take you downtown. Big billboard on the side of the road. It says mental health care is health care. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, that number one is bullshit. <laughs> because I just spent somewhere in the ballpark of $300 to have surgery at the end of last year. I'm paying $130 every time I go see my therapist. Is that parody? Is that that does not say to me that mental health care is health care. That's saying to me that I'm getting specialized help that is being charged as such. Well, and guess what? Your surgeon, the rates that they are being reimbursed at and that they are receiving for doing that work are increasing. And yep. therapists for the past 15 years have stayed the same or decreased. Wow. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Did not know that. I also, so one of the rabbit holes, and then there's kind of one other topic I wanted to touch on with you before we wrap. You, you mentioned the 70% number around white men uh, accounting for annual completed suicides. It's right around 70%, right. which is one of the big questions that led to the formulation of this show for me. It's one of the things I wanted to answer, which is why, why did my dad make this choice at age 55? Why did your dad make that choice at age 53? Why did my friend's dad make that choice at age 60? Why is it our dads? Why is it our grandpas? What What is going on here that we're so obviously missing? Mm -hmm. So I wanna acknowledge that, that there is truth in that, and that is a population that is affected by attempted, but even more so completed suicide at a much higher rate than other populations. Mm -hmm. uh, a rabbit hole I've gone down in having this conversation with other people is that there may be some underreporting amongst amongst other populations and communities. And I'm wondering, do, do you believe that to be true? Do you see that happen? What are the reasons that suicide may be reported less from other communities? Or do you think that's a myth altogether? Oh, gosh, yes, rabbit hole. Uh, so this brings me back to dissertation dissertation days. We should we should go off on that. But <laughs> so and I might have said, um, you know, cishet white men. And that was probably not fair because what we're looking at on the death certificates is white male identified, meaning on the birth certificate and the death certificate. It's male. That doesn't mean they identify that way. We are labeling them. That's probably a better way. Yeah. Um, so we're labeling these folks as white males. And I think it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 20, so 70% of all suicide deaths in a year ends up being white males. 25% end up being middle-aged white males. And I think what we have come to see as a privilege that these males hold actually is a disservice to them 
and building resilience and the ability to bounce back from issues that they've experienced. So you mentioned earlier that your dad didn't really have a lot of great choices. I don't know that my dad did either. Why is that? Because they're expected to be the breadwinner. They're expected to be the person that maintains the household. Are they or are they not? I don't, you know, that's arguable. Do they or do they not? That's again, arguable. But there's the expectation there. There's the expectation that they're going to rise through the ranks. Again, seen as privilege and very fairly so, because those are the folks who tend to be moved up. But at the same time, what pressures are we putting on them because of that? So I think that there is a disparity in the expectations of this particular population that is probably leading to uh, increased rates of not feeling like they have other options Mm. because they've never been presented with one. Um, Most other folks that have, you know, some sort of marginalized identity have figured out like, oh, I can adjust or I can figure out my way through things. Whereas they aren't given a whole lot of options. They're just expected to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which generally speaking, we all kind of are as a society, but perhaps them more so. Um, I think across the board, there's underreporting without a doubt, no matter what your race, age, ethnicity, it doesn't matter. Any of your demographics, there is underreporting. Uh, there might be some places where underreporting happens more because of stigma as related to maybe religion or a cultural stigma. And so it's like, oh, not my insert loved one here. No, they would never kill themselves. And there's a push to not note that on the death certificate. Mm. Also, you mentioned earlier about the the differences between attempts. It's been around since I've started doing, looking at the research, that females, and again, we're being very binary here, just based upon like birth certificate, death certificate, that females have attempted at three times the rate as males yet they're using other means that they aren't dying from. So it's possible that when they do die, maybe there's a question like, was this actually an overdose? Was this a mistake or an accident? Mm. Versus if a male is using something like a firearm, it's like very clear, oh, there was intent here. There was, you know, the process of using the firearm, there wasn't a whole lot of question about who pulled the trigger and why it happened. So I think cause of death plays into that as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, this is a multi-layered question that you've just started here <laughs> that we could go down a rabbit hole on. Um, so I'm so, I, this really hits on a word that I wanted to bring today, which is unexplainable. It just so happened the meditation I did this morning was about how do we accept the unexplainable and Mm -hmm. suicide to a certain extent is unexplainable and it never will be. Do we have reasons for why a person might want to take their life? Sure. Do we kind of see in hindsight the buildup to a suicide attempt or suicide death? Absolutely. But in the end, there's a lot that's unexplainable. And that is hard to sit with as well. Oh, yeah. 
Okay, I, I have to put a pin in at this point, I think, because there are just so many other questions rattling through my head. There's an entire conversation that I think I could have with you about trauma mm -hmm. and how trauma plays into mental illness, how it plays into suicidality, how it plays into addiction. I was really hoping to pick your brain on that. So maybe we could sit down again. I really hope we could because I think we could have another 90 minute conversation and still not be able to squeeze in everything that I'd like to talk about. Sure. There's a question I like to end with, uh, you know, in addition to the question I like to start with. Before I do that, though, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, share anything that is on your mind that we didn't touch on. Ask any questions that you may have. Plug anything that you like to plug. The, the floor is yours if there's anything and it's OK if there's not. Yeah, I don't. I mean, we have talked about a lot and we've hit on a lot of areas that I am passionate about. I think for anybody listening to this, just know that there are supports out there, regardless of what you've gone through or what your connection to suicide is. There are supports and there are people who get it and there are people who want to help you. And I just encourage you to keep searching until you find that right fit. Is it frustrating? Is it exhausting? Absolutely. I just want to encourage you to keep searching until you find that person or persons who can support you in the ways that you need. Because I was fortunate enough to find that and I know that you can too. So that if I was going to leave the listeners, so to speak, with anything, that is what I would leave them with. Um, I won't I won't take your airspace to plug myself other than to say my name is pretty unique. So if you want to search me, you can probably find me. Um, and I'm happy to help anybody anywhere um, with whatever I can uh, with regards to suicide prevention, intervention, suicide loss, mental health. Uh, that is a lot of what I do dedicate my time to is supporting others. Excellent. Very well said. Thank you. And, and on the notion of leaving our, our listeners with something, I, I like to come back to the core of why we're having this conversation in the first place, which is the, the loss of your dad, um, which interestingly enough, his name is my dad's middle name. Mm. My dad was Robert James. And we, we did talk, I, I think, quite a bit about your dad's life and about a lot of his defining characteristics and um, just all the things that made him who he was. For those listening, what would you like them to remember about your dad? So walking away from this conversation, all the things we've talked about, what's something you you hope people remember about your dad now uh, 12, 12 or 13 years after losing him to suicide? Mm -hmm. Yeah, going on 12 years. I think just knowing that he was a person who showed up for others and his loss has encouraged me to show up more for other people. And yet also knowing that he didn't always show up for himself. And that's a hard lesson for us to learn as well. That mm. as much as we give to others, we need to give to ourselves. I wish he had learned that earlier. Um, maybe things would have been different for him. But, you know, his while we miss not having him, his loss was not totally in waste. Um, that a lot of great things have come from that. And I tell him that all the time. Look at what your your death has spurred me and others to do uh, and how many people are being helped because of that one loss. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you, Dana. 
And, and just in general, thank you for joining me today and, and sharing your wealth of experience and expertise. I just want to express my gratitude for you and the work that you do and just validate how important I believe that it is. Um, so thank you for being you. Thank you for what you do. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you again soon. Yeah. Thank you for holding this space for us. Happy to. Thanks, Dana. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye.